Thank you so much. Thank you for the honor and the opportunity to be here with you this, uh, this morning. Um, I want to talk about prayer today. I want to talk about uh, our persistence and consistency in our prayer. Uh, but I'll begin with a story. And the story starts by letting you know that I am 55 years old. Turn to your neighbor and say, he doesn't look 55. <laughs> and respond and also with you. So yes, I am 55 years old. I am well in my 50s. Now, when I turned 50, I did what many of us do at the turn of the, the decade mark, which was this is the decade, the decade of the 50s, when I will lose weight and get fit. I, I made that same promise when I turned 40. Didn't happen, but no, the 50s is when it's really going to happen. I'm going to get fit, lose weight, and I'm going to exercise more regularly. Now, I'm an academic, as was introduced earlier. I'm a, I'm a professor at, uh, at uh, Fuller Seminary. And uh, academics, like, uh, we like to do research. So I went to the academic researcher's number one tool. You might have heard of it. It's called Google. So I go on Google, <laughs> and I type in, how do I lose weight? How do I get fit? And the answer popped up, and it's something called CrossFit. Have any of you heard of this? Have you ever done this? I haven't. I just looked it up. Uh, and CrossFit, it turns out, uses a philosophy called muscle confusion. And when I read that, I was like, this is absolutely the program for me because my approach to exercise has always been muscle confusion, <laughs> which is the application is I don't go to the gym for months, and then when I go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why we are there, and they get really hard and angry. Um, so I was beginning to think about, all right, if there's an idea about how we do exercise and physical fitness through confusion, uh, the, the, the concept is disruption. You disrupt your routine. You cause confusion and dis-ease about the status quo, and that that actually could and should lead to physical health and well-being, well, the question I ask then is, is it possible that that's the way our spiritual lives work as well? That if we're too satisfied with the status quo and we don't have disruption, confusion, and dis-ease, we actually might not be growing spiritually. So I want to talk today about disruption, dis-ease, and confusion. And we're going to do it by looking at a parable. Parables, as many of you know, are an important part of Jesus' method of teaching. Uh, my colleague at North Park has this wonderful book called Stories with Intent. It's about Yathik, and it's all about the parables. And the way uh, 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 Klein describes parables is that they're stories that, in some sense, puts you into a world that is familiar. So that's why the parables are about agriculture and building homes and just kind of almost everyday life is depicted in the parables. But there's a twist to the parables, and there's something that happens that makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And so the intention of the parables is to say in everyday life, there might be an introduction of what is uncomfortable, what is discomfort, and maybe out of that, our spiritual lives will grow. And that's what we want to look at today. In Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we find out that there is a, not quite a normal scene, but almost an everyday scene, a scene of everyday life. And there's a little bit of a twist that introduces some discomfort into how we understand this story. So I want to talk about this story from three different perspectives. If you read through this passage in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, you'll find that there are three main characters or three perspectives that are at work here. The first one is pretty obvious. That's the perspective of Jesus, the storyteller, the parable teller here. So Jesus has a particular way of wanting to tell the story and has an intention about what he wants to say in the story. And we see this in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And then the framing of that is, 
And when, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Jesus kind of frames this parable with two comments. The first is to say, we pray and we do not give up. And then he ends this, uh, uh, this parable with, will uh, the Son of Man find faithfulness? And you'll find that both the beginning and the end of this parable have the same point. Faithfulness, perseverance in prayer. This is an important challenge to the church. And this is how we begin the understanding of this parable. Jesus says to us, will you be faithful? Will you be faithful in your prayer life? Persevere in your prayer life. Will you challenge one another to continue to pray and to not give up? So I, when I look at this parable from this perspective, it's a straightforward teaching that lets me know that if I'm a follower of Jesus and Jesus wants me to teach, wants me to learn about prayer, he's saying one of the central attributes of prayer is faithfulness and perseverance. Always pray and not give up. I find that this is one of those places where the church can get this intellectually, but not really understand this in the heart and in the soul and in the spirit. And that even, especially when it comes to difficult circumstances, the first thing to do is to resort to your own strength and not to what Jesus admonishes us to hear. When the challenges come, when the, the, uh, the difficulties come up, our first instinct is not to pray our first instinct is to work harder. Our first instinct is to, uh, to, to rile ourselves up to do better rather than to be on our knees in prayer. Uh, as was mentioned, I was a pastor for many years. In fact, I served as a pastor for 17 years. Uh, and for the last 17, I've been a, a professor at, uh, at a seminary. So my, my ministry and career has been kind of split right in half. Uh, but one of the things I remember most about, about pastoring is how difficult it is day to day to day to day. Like when you have a big picture of like what the church can be, that's exciting. Uh, the, the things that the church can do. So I remember when I was in seminary and I was a first year student at seminary. I was, went to seminary out on the East Coast. And uh, a good friend of mine who was uh, in his last year in seminary invited me over to dinner to, I guess, kind of show me the ropes and to, to welcome me into the school. And he asked me, well, what are your dreams about what the church can be? It was a fantastic question for a seminary student to be asked. And I started talking about all the dreams that I had about what I wanted in ministry. And that was actually kind of easy. It rolled off my tongue of what I wanted to see in the, in the many years of ministry I had in front of me. So I began to talk about it. I want to pastor a church of five, sixty thousand people. And, and I want to I have that church be uh, impactful in everything that we do. We're going to build houses for the poor. We're going to have a counseling center. We're going to have uh, legal aid. And we're going to have a medical center. And we're going to do all these incredible things. And I went on and on about all the great things that I wanted to accomplish. And I was going to work hard for that and do it for God's glory and do it for all these good reasons. And my dear friend, very patient, very wise as a last year student in seminary, just nodded his head in approval for all the dreams that I had. But he said something that kind of cut me, to, cut me uh, at the end of that statement. So I went on and on and he looked at me and he said, I envy you. He said, you have big dreams. You have big ambitions. You have big goals and things you want to do and you're going to work hard to get there. I envy you. Because I used to have those dreams when I started seminary, and now that I'm getting ready to graduate, I don't really have those dreams anymore. 
And I said, poor guy, jaded, jaded, man. I, I don't know what to do with him. And he said something that really struck me. So I don't have those big dreams anymore because a lot of those dreams got kind of put by the wayside with years of spiritual struggle. And now I just want to be faithful to the Lord. That's all I want. I don't need a big church. I don't need to accomplish. I don't need to be on a big platform or stage. I just want to be faithful to the Lord. And in this passage, Jesus is reminding us, yeah, we probably can work really hard and accomplish things. Yeah, we probably can get all the degrees and get the accolades. But at the end of the day, will the Son of Man find faithfulness among his people? Not that you have accomplished great things. Not that you have built a big church. Not that you have uh, gained name recognition for yourself, but that you are faithful. And at the end of the days, Jesus is able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I've had too many friends who've kind of faltered on the wayside over the years. I've had too many colleagues and even mentors of mine who've struggled throughout their careers. Maybe it's not so much what we accomplish. Maybe it's our faithfulness. I just want to be faithful to the Lord. So learning from Jesus, his perspective is, I want to teach my disciples what it means to be faithful. But there's another perspective, of course, and that's the perspective or point of view of the widow. It's a very important character in this story. The widow, and there was a widow, verse 3, in that town, who kept coming to the judge with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, says the judge, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come to attack me. Verse 7, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So the second character in this story is the character of the widow. Of course, obviously at the center of this story. And we might put ourselves into the story as seeing ourselves like the widow. And it's important that we do that to say, how can we be like that widow in this story? Well, the widow in this story is clearly seeking out justice. And you know the biblical themes around this. Oftentimes, the widows were the most vulnerable in that society. The widows were the ones that were um, the most, most likely to be victims of injustice. So if there was injustice in the world, the first ones to get hurt are not the wealthy, are not the privileged or the powerful. The first ones to get hurt are the widows and the orphans. You see this all throughout the Old and New Testament of how God cares for the widow and the orphan. Why? Because they are the most vulnerable of our society. Injustice has occurred here to the widow, the most vulnerable person in that society. And so justice is being cried out for by the widow, the most helpless and the most marginalized and the most vulnerable in that community. The lesson here is if we are to put ourselves in the place of the widow is how do we cry out for justice when there is significant injustice? What does it mean to put ourselves in the place of the widow and the orphan? Let's be honest, most of us are not in that space. Most of us are in the place because we have money to have shelter. We have money to put food on the table. We have 2.3 children and 2.3 cars. We've got the things that give us a standing in society that is not like the widow we see here. She has endured injustice, and she cries out for justice. Now, one thing I want to point out is that the word justice here is, I think, intentionally vague. 
There is no specificity to this, as in, I mean, it's hinted at, but somebody stole money from me, or somebody took my property away, or somebody took my rights away. It's actually intentionally vague because justice is such a huge and large issue. And so we're talking about a widow, the most marginalized in our society, experiencing an injustice and crying out to God for that justice. A reminder for us then, what does it mean as God's people to actually be the ones who are crying out for the very least of our brothers and our sisters? Not for the powerful, the privileged, but to listen to and to advocate for the very least of our brothers and our sisters. How does our prayer change if we are not speaking from our privilege and power, but we're speaking from those that are broken, those that are marginalized, those that society has cast aside? Mother's Day is one week away, and this past week, uh, or first week of May, uh, would have been my mom's 90th birthday. She passed away two years ago. So this Mother's Day is going to be challenging. For the third year in a row, it will be a very challenging Mother's Day. Uh, my mom um, had a very difficult life. And she had a difficult life because uh, she was a single mom. Uh, my dad had left her family when we moved to the United States. And uh, someone who didn't speak English very well, we ended up um, being poor. Um, it's hard to tell now, but I, I grew up in, in a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. I grew up in the hood. Uh, you know, yeah, that's not where I'm anymore, but I grew up in a rough neighborhood in Baltimore. My neighborhood was a third poor black, a third poor white, and a third poor immigrants. And all of us were in subsidized housing. All of us were on food stamps. And we moved there because my mom couldn't afford to, to help us live anywhere else. She had four children, uh, three older sisters and myself, wanted to keep the family together, and the only way to do that was to move into what turned out to be a really rough neighborhood in Baltimore. In fact, a few years ago, a friend of mine was doing a documentary on, on immigration and wanted to go back to my old neighborhood. We go back to my old neighborhood and we're, he has a, he's carrying out a, a professional camera and we're walking around filming my old neighborhood. And uh, three young uh, black women, uh, girls, teenagers, come up and talk to us and say, hey, what are you all doing? He said, well, we're filming a documentary about someone who grew up in this neighborhood. And their first answer was, oh, uh, is he a rap star? No, no, not a rap star. No, no. But the second question was also very telling. Oh, was he shot? Is that why you're here to film the documentary? That was the neighborhood I grew up in. And so when I grew up in that neighborhood, it was a reminder of what it felt like to be essentially among the widows and the orphans in our society. We were on food stamps. We were in subsidized housing. There were drug addicts hanging out in the basement of our apartment complex. There were gang fights in our neighborhood. That was the norm that we grew up in. And my mom worked really long hours to keep our family together. She would work from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. at an inner city carryout. Some of you know, if you go into the neighborhood, uh, in, the, in the inner city neighborhood, uh, these are the places that have the f entire front is plexiglass, bulletproof glass. And then there's a little lazy Susan that passes the food and the money back and forth. That's where she would work all day long, making food for people in the community and serving that community. And then at night, uh, to make more money, because it was hard to make ends meet on that kind of salary, she would go and work in an inner city nursing home in the night shift from 11 to about 7 a.m., uh, changing bedpans and being on call for the senior citizens at this inner city nursing home. So she worked 20 hours a day. She would rush home after that night shift, make breakfast for her kids, sleep two hours, and, and then go back to work. She worked 20 hours a day, six days a week, and she did that for years and years and years to keep her family together. On Sundays, she rested, rested, 
She would take the kids and take us to church, and she would be in the kitchen at the church making food for the elders and for the deacons and for the pastors. She worked 20 hours a day, six days a week, for years and years and years to keep her family together. What was amazing at the time, though, is that the media and the politician had a name for her around that time. It wasn't hero, which she was. It wasn't super, superhero, which she was. It was welfare queen. And society had labeled my mom a welfare queen because she was working 20 hours a day, still couldn't make ends meet, and ended up taking food stamps. And society had a name for her. Single mom, immigrant, welfare queen. I remember what that felt like as a son to see the woman you have just admired all of your life, who worked, did everything for the family, who was the widow in the story, had endured injustice, and had cried out for justice, and society had instead called her her name, called her an outsider, an outcast. But what was interesting is that she had a different standing in the church. In the church, she wasn't the welfare queen, she wasn't the servant that waited on people. She was, in the Korean church, we call her kwansanim, which is a term for a woman elder in the church. And I remember I would visit her at work and to pick her up from a late night shift that she had at the inner city carryout, and I would watch her from the back, and there would be a long line of people who would come up to get food from her, but I would also remember that they didn't know her name. They never looked at her in her face. She was an anonymous immigrant worker like we encounter so many times throughout the week. But I remember on Sundays, we would go to church, and on retreats for the church, there would be a line, but it was a different line. It was a line of men and women who would come up to receive prayer from my mom. And the world called her a welfare queen, but the church called her kwansanim, elder, prayer warrior. This is what it means for the church to be on the side of the poor, to be on the side of those that are marginalized. To be on the side of those who are the prayer warriors. My mom, uh, she died when she was 88, but in her late 60s, she showed me the condition of her knees. Most of us have one kneecap on each knee. She had five on each knee. Because for decades, she knelt on a hard wooden floor and prayed to her God on behalf of her family, her children. And if you do that an hour a day, for 20, 30 years, your kneecaps can't take it. So her kneecaps cracked open and conformed to the shape of the floor. So whenever she knelt before God, her kneecaps were conformed to the shape of the floor. And the world called her a welfare queen. But the church calls her a hero, a woman of God, a kwanzanim, a prayer warrior. This is what it means to honor the widows and the orphans among us. Not as objects of pity, but as the warriors that stand between us and God on our behalf. There's a third person in this story, and that's the judge. And oftentimes when we read this story, we say, okay, we're like Jesus who teaches others about prayer, or, or we're like the widows that have experienced difficulties and we pray out to God. We very rarely and maybe never see ourselves as the judge in this story. But I want to challenge you on this. Maybe we're more like the judge than any other character in this story. Maybe we're the ones that don't care about what, the, what God says or what the people think. Maybe we are so wrapped up in our privilege and in our power and in our honoring by human society that we forget what it's like to be poor, to be lost, to be marginalized. This judge is living a comfortable life. 
This judge has all the powers and privileges of being at the top of his society. So his concern is not with justice for those who are experiencing injustice. His concern is not justice for those who are poor, those who are marginalized. His concern is not for that widow. So I'm asking you, do you see yourself as the teacher trying to correct people about prayer? Or do you see yourself as the widow who is the victim of injustice? Or are we more likely the judge that needs to open our hearts, our minds, and our ears to the victims of injustice? Are we those whose hearts have been hardened? Are we those who have been in such positions of privilege and power that we forget the stories of those that are hurting? Maybe we're the judge after all. Several years ago, um, I started teaching at Fuller uh, two years ago, moved out here summer of two years ago. Uh, five years prior to, th- uh, uh, sorry, 15 years prior to that, I was on the faculty at North Park Seminary in Chicago. And I had the incredible privilege of being able to serve at a, a facility called Stateville Correctional Center. It's a max security prison that's about 45 minutes an hour outside of the city of Chicago. If you know how uh, state prison works, uh, the, the uh, full offenders who get maximum sentences or high sentences are usually not in the city of Chicago. They're actually, if, even if the crime is committed in Chicago, they're actually sent about an hour away. So there was this um, a, a max security prison called Stateville that North Park started a program with. And we went in and offered master's degrees and, and bachelor's degrees. And I'm in conversation about starting a doctoral program at Stateville Correctional Center. Uh, but I, we started there, so it's now been about seven years, but uh, we started going into Stateville and started working with the incarcerated at, the, at this max security prison. Um, now, I don't know if you've ever been into uh, a max security prison, but the whole process is, is very frightening because they, first of all, they need to strip you down and, and search you completely, uh, and then they make you walk through, and then the gates close behind you, and then the gates in front of you, and you're in this space that you were completely locked in, and then finally, the gates open in front of you, and you're able to go into the, into the actual prison. Uh, it's a very demeaning, dehumanizing process to walk through that space and to go into that prison uh, system. So uh, we, would start te- we taught, uh, started teaching classes there, and in the, in the back, there is this education building, and it is run down. It's n- uh, not heated, not air-conditioned, so it's freezing cold in the winter and burning hot during the summer, but that's the only place that we could have class. Now... Um, you might not notice, but again, I, I might have grown up in the hood, but I'm not very hood anymore. So, you know, the Ivy League degrees kind of, you know, uh, temper that hoodness that's left in me. Uh, so, and I'm not very tall. Some of you might have noticed that. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, about average Asian height, which is short. Uh, and so uh, I'm going in there as a short Asian uh, pudgy, and I'll admit that. Okay, so I'm going in there into this prison, and everybody is six foot four. 220 pounds. There's not a whole lot to do in prison, so there's a lot of working out. These men are cut. I mean, they are, they are buff. So I'm walking in, and as many of you might know, in a prison system, it's mostly black and brown bodies. So I'm walking into a classroom that's about 80% African-American, 15% Latino, one or two uh, white, uh, white students. So I'm walking in there. Again, everybody is looming over me, much better uh, physically. And so I said, I need to... I need to show who's in charge in this classroom. <laughs> I, I can't be too intimidated here. So I walk into that classroom, and I start asserting my credentials. I'm a tenure professor. I've written X number of books. I've been to these Ivy League schools. I have two masters, two doctorates, and I go on and on. Now, to their credit, my students were extraordinarily generous, and they put up with my boasting. 
They put up with my listing out of my power and privilege. I even actually went there dressed, you know, even better than I am now. I was in, you know, the, the professor wear of a, of a tweed jacket and, <laughs> and, and khaki pants. Just to let them know, this is, I'm your professor, I'm in charge here. Again, they were so gracious. They were listening to me and they, they were like, that's great. Thank you, doc. Thank you, prof. Uh, that lasted about six, seven, maybe eight weeks uh, in my first class that I taught there. And at about the eight-week marks, um, this was, about, again, five, about five years ago, I was going through everything wrong that could happen was happening. My, my marriage was falling apart. My, my kids were going through some of the most difficult challenges. My son struggles with depression and anxiety, and he was having so much struggles uh, during that time. Uh, my daughter had just started at, at Pepperdine, and it was the year that there was that mass shooting, and one of her her uh, 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 sweet mates was there, and one of her classmates was killed at that mass shooting in Calabasas. Uh, right after that, the fires hit, and they had to evacuate her uh, from, uh, from the campus. Uh, my mom was sick and would eventually pass away. Um, everything that you can think of that was going wrong was happening at that moment. And that facade of strength, that facade of power, I could not keep up in that classroom. And so at about the seven, eight-week mark, I, I, I fell apart. And uh, it's, it's, that's, that's kind of tough to do in that setting, to be in a prison and to just start falling apart. And, and I, I just couldn't be that strong person standing there. So I sat in my chair and I, I started, now I wasn't crying, but I was, I was very much distraught. And I actually put my head in my hands and I was very clearly in a moment of weakness. And I would not forget how Corzell Cole Corzell, six foot four, 220 pounds, tattoos all over his body, big, tough, strong black man. And he had been, you know, through all the things in his life. And he comes over and he whispers in my ear, I'm going to get into trouble for what I'm about to do. And he puts his arms around me and he hugs me and he holds me and allows me to blubber in his arms for a few minutes. There comes a moment when our pretense of power, privilege, authority, wealth, all the things that we thought gave us status in our society, there comes a moment where we can't be that unrighteous judge, but we instead hear the voice of the widow and say, Lord, how shall I respond? Corzell is a free man today, by the way. Corzell was received clemency and uh, he's now working as a barber on the south side of Chicago. The next week, my dear friend uh, Michael, he looked up, I don't know how, but he looked up somehow how to say, I love you, dear brother, in Korean, and said that to me when class began. My dear friend William Jones, uh, 67 years old, he was on death row. Then when they got rid of death row, he actually eventually ended up uh, getting a life sentence. Uh, he probably would never get out of prison been in prison now for 35 years. Uh, he said, on the way out today, I want to I give you something. And when I went out, he had left a painting for me that he had done. And he said, uh, this is you. And apparently he thinks I'm a black man with a huge afro, because he had painted a black man with a huge afro charging the gates of hell. And he said, this is you. You are going to be more than a conqueror. We don't have to be in that position of power, privilege to do good. Sometimes it is in that place where we hear the voice of the weak, of the widows, marginalized. Maybe that's when we do the most good. 
One of my students, dear friend, Joseph Wilson, his nickname was Big Fella. He was a big fella. So we called him Big Fella. One of the sweetest men I've ever met. Uh, he was uh, 38 when I met him. Uh, he died when he was 40. Um, he went to jail because um, of bad forensics, bad, shoddy uh, police work. Uh, his two younger brother, one younger brother and one younger sister, 14, 15 years old, had found a gun on the street. They brought it to Big Fella. And he said, what are you doing with this gun? I'm going to throw it away. And he's walking to, to toss it into the, into the, uh, into the sewer. Um, and a middle-aged white man pulls up in a late model car in a luxury vehicle and says, hey, what are you going to do with that gun? I'll buy it off of you for $500. He gives him the money, gives him the gun. He drives one block away, and the man blows his brains out. Um, all the forensic evidence showed that this was suicide. The gun is on the passenger side. The window is broken in that direction. Everything shows that this was clearly a suicide. But big fella's prints are on the gun. And people saw him give him that gun. And so he was convicted of murder and was sentenced to 30 years in prison. Northwestern University picked him up as the part of the Innocence Project and said, we're going we're to take up this case because it's clearly, clearly shoddy forensics. We're gonna, and he was on his way going through the appeals process and would have probably have been released. And Big Fella is telling me all of this story and he is excited because he's going to be able to see his, his wife and kids soon. And he's going to be reunited with his family. But right around that time, COVID struck and it happened to have struck in prison the hardest, as many of you know. And Stateville Prison was hit very hard by the COVID pandemic very early on. And Big Fellow, within a month of COVID striking, Stateville was dead. Never got to see, because they wouldn't even allow his wife and his kid to come in and see him on his deathbed. When I think about that injustice that Big Fellow endured, the story then becomes, I can no longer be that judge that has no compassion. I need to be the judge. I need to be the one with the power and privilege who speaks on behalf of the big fellas of the world, who speaks on behalf of the Corzell Coles of the world, and yes, who speaks on behalf of my moms of the world. Let the parable make you uncomfortable because maybe we're the judge that needs to hear the voices of the widows and the orphans. Gracious God, thank you that you call us to a life of prayer, but not an easy life of prayer, but a difficult life of prayer, of men, women, fathers and mothers, grandparents who cry out on behalf of those that are hurting in our world. May your truth, may your justice reign in this broken world. We pray this in your name. Amen.